In corporate America, you hear this thing called recruit and retain. Who the hell wants to be retained? I don't want to retain anybody. anybody. I, I want to attract and provide. Welcome to Good Business Talking, and I'm your host, Ravi Rai. Today, I'm speaking to a man with a unique background, the son of an orphaned mother and a pimp father. He's been on the streets and regularly didn't know if there would be food on the table at the weekends when school meals weren't available. So at a young age, he decided to stop hoping and instead believing because it put control back on him to make his life better. Today, Devon McCormick is a successful businessman and current CEO of Scribe Media, a company that on Glassdoor has a CEO approval rate of 100%, a 98% recommendation rate, and has scored overall 4.9 out of five stars as a place to work. A few things we spoke about were how success at Scribe Media is made up of just three things. How people should get fired for not asking enough questions. And what to focus on if you want to pivot your business into one that's a force for good. I love this because Javon is a straight talker. He has an incredible ability to share his ideas simply bundled with oozes of passion and thought. So without further ado, let's get started. Don't my previous or have all been in my laundry room? <laughs> <laughs> so she said, You've actually got too much soft furnishing there. You're signing my voice, so move location. So here I am. You nice. are the first man I'm inviting to my bedroom. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I, I, I'll keep that with us. <laughs> <laughs> Although we're on recording now, so I'll cut that bit out. <laughs> oh man, I love it. I love it. Cool. Hey, um, so good. Uh, you got my couple of pages okay after we first spoke. Yep. Cool. So uh, we good to go? Yep. You, you lead, I will follow. And I don't often say that. <laughs> Amazing. Cool. Um, JT, is that what I call you? Should I call you JT? Or do you want me to call you something else? Man, I, I go by Javon now, and if it, it may even be a good segue for you if you want to uh, talk about how that even came to be. Okay. So, Javon, welcome. Excellent, Ravi. How is it going, sir? Awesome. This is my favorite time of the year. Autumn, beautiful colors, sunny days, yes. so all good. Yes, I actually for me too. I, I in, in here obviously in the states, th- it's Thanksgiving in two days, uh, and and gosh, that's probably one of my my favorite holidays because it doesn't actually consist of giving anyone anything. You don't have to buy anything. There's just uh, spend some time with people, have great conversations, uh, eat food, and and relax, and that's it. Hey, that's what uh, warms the soul, right? Mazda knew what he was talking about. Yes, exactly. Fantastic. So, hey, um, Javon, um, why don't we start off by maybe giving the listeners maybe a 60-second intro to describe media, the business, in terms of what it does, the size, the markets, employees, that kind of stuff. Just give us some context. Wow. So, Scribe Media, what we do is we help authors write 
publish and market their books. So we've been around for six years. We are about 60 full-time. Uh, we call ourselves tribe members. We don't call ourselves employees or team. We, we call ourselves tribe members. Uh, we've worked with over 1,800 authors, uh, some of the bigger names that people would, would recognize. Uh, mm -hmm. We did David Goggin's book, which was the, uh, the outside of Michelle Obama's, the, the best-selling memoir of all time. We've worked with the Nobel Peace Prize Committee uh, we just worked with the ex-CEO of Chipotle. Uh, we, we've worked with uh, Nassim Taleb and Tiffany Haddish, the actress. So, so those are some of the bigger names. But for the most part, the, the great majority of the authors that we work with are CEOs, consultants, business owners, people who want to write a, a legacy piece. We, we work strictly uh, nonfiction. So in, in the, the thing that I would say is us for a company, one of the the personal things that I'm very proud of is we're six years old. We have no outside money. So there's no private equity. There's no venture capital. There's no debt. There's no loans. And more importantly, we're profitable. So I tell people all the time, I said, if you want to see a real unicorn, come come look at us because there's no outside money. There's no fictitious valuations. We don't, we're, you know, this isn't WeWork where, you know, you got some $49 billion valuation that obviously was not true. Yeah. So I'm very proud of the fact that, that we can say that, that you no debt, no loans, no outside capital, and we're profitable. Beautiful. And I hadn't realized you've only been going for six years and you're the size yeah. you're at right now. So um, hat off to you. And, you know, you, funny you talk about unicorns. I, um, and I'm going to, I'd, I'd like us to get into how you're a unicorn in a different way. Maybe not in so much of the, the financial way yet, but <laughs> how you kind of show up. But we'll get into that. Um, now, I, I'm, I'm keen to explore your mission a little bit, right? So reading up about you, what you very explicitly state is the following. Um, your mission is to help everyone on earth write, publish, market, and own their book so they can share their story and, like you just said it, to leave a legacy of impact on others. Now, what you then go on to say is, we are so sincere about this, we prove it by giving our process away for free. We're the premier writing and publishing service company on earth, but we only provide services to the rich that wouldn't fulfill our mission. Man, I mean, that is audacious. So <laughs> I'm seriously curious. How did you come, how did that mission even come about? What was the spark for you? Couple of things, you know, uh, the, the, the mission itself is everyone has a story. And, and we actually, what, what's interesting is we stole that. We, we stole that, that line from my mother and, and I'll share it with you. When I was a kid, uh, be, being a mixed race child, my, my mother's white, my father's black, uh, my mother would always say to me, never judge anyone because everyone has a story and you don't know their story. Hmm. So we, we stole that and, and said, okay, everyone has a story. And, you know, I've always been intrigued by uh, the, the Ford family, the Anheuser-Busch family, where they contract six, seven generations and, and they have these legacies and I, I don't have one for, for me personally. You know, I don't, I can't track 30 minutes, let alone six generations. <laughs> and, 
And so I've always been intrigued why more people don't write a legacy piece for for their their life to pass down to their great great grandchildren, uh, even even if it's a business book. You know, if you're a wealth advisor, to to tell about what you've done, what you've accomplished, the people you have helped to to have that book. But we truly believe everyone has a story. We do. Everyone has a life, so that means everyone has a story. And regardless if you're using your book for credibility, thought leadership, lead generation, or legacy piece. Everyone has a story. And, and I've always just been shocked on how many people don't leave their, their story behind for the next generation. Hmm. Really interesting. And I'm going to come on to your story because I know that's pretty unique, right? Um, now, in terms of giving that away, I mean, you state you give away the process for free. Yes. Um, and Ayla, hey, uh, I've seen staff, you know, some, you know, there's normally a bit of a catch there somewhere, you know, is it truly free or is it something true. that you, you, you can so, go on our, our site right now. A matter of fact, multiple ways. Uh, so hmm. we have what we call the scribe method book. Everything we do is in this book. And if you go onto our site and you, you uh, want the book for free, we will send it to you for free. If you go onto our site, you'll look at our courses. We give that away to you for free. So we truly give you for free everything that we do to create a book. Now, for those individuals who are, you know, in a better financial position, obviously they pay us to, to do their book. But we have multiple levels of how people can engage with us. You can look at our, what we give away for free to write your book. You can come to our writing course, our guided author course, where we assist you and you do the writing and then we do all the publishing for you. Then you can go to our professional package to where uh, you sit with us. We do the interviews with you. We go back and forth. We pull all the content and words from you. And then we put that into make sure it flows correctly. It, it reads well. And then we put that into book form for you. So we have multiple ways that people can engage with us. But what was key is making sure everyone had access to this. And, and, and I got to share this with you as well. What I find interesting, and I know you said we'll, we'll jump into this, but what I find interesting about what we do and making sure that we give it away to, to everyone is when I was a kid, some of the schools that I went to, they were so bad that the teachers would not let us take our textbooks home at night for wow. fear that the books would not come back the next day. Wow. And so now here I find myself giving away information for free on how you can write your book. Beautiful, beautiful. So what I'm getting from that is... <clears throat> disregarding any constraint you might have financially and uh, capability wise if you've got the will and the desire to write a book you've got everything you need to write it from your free package everything right? everything mm. amazing so and do you have a sense of roughly how many people have built free books versus those that have paid for a service. Do you track that in any way? I can imagine we, it's pretty tough. Yeah, we don't we don't track the the, the free ones. What, what we do track is when we have those individuals that reach out to us and they'll, they'll email us, send us a letter, send us a copy of their book. Those are those are really cool. That, and they'll say, hey, I went directly from, from your book step by step. Here's a copy of my book. Thank you so much. If it wasn't for your process, the, the free information, I would not have been able to make this happen. So we, we don't have you know, how, how many people have we helped, but we do have those success stories of people who have emailed us, sent us a copy of their book, told us how they utilized our services. And, and those are always uh, some of the best to receive because I, if it wasn't for the free information, they wouldn't have been able to write their book. 
Right. And is there one in particular that's really struck a chord for you in terms of how someone wow. came about it and they've created something that you just thought, wow, that's, that's pretty awesome. That's pretty exceptional. You know, I, I'd have to go with, uh, and I'm going to pull the curtain back a little bit here. We started a, and it's internal. We haven't made it completely live to the world yet. We started a program called Unheard Voices. And those individuals who have a phenomenal story that just needs to be shared with, with everyone because so many people can be impacted from it and, and learn from it. We actually have gotten behind those books and, and financed them ourselves as a company and to, to tell those stories. And we've got several of those internal that we've helped from a, a gentleman in Honduras uh, building communities so people don't feel the need to uh, flee the country to try to get into the United States and, and what he's wow. done for, for Honduras. Uh, a gentleman who was literally in prison for murder, we helped him write his book uh, and, and help uh, inmates, former inmates, transition back into to society. So some some of the stories are just incredible that, that they, they had to be shared with the world. So we got behind them and, and financed them ourselves. Nice, nice. So, I mean, that for me is pretty great example of how you are truly being purpose-led that you're actually funding some of these amazing stories so good on you i love it um so uh, i'm keen to go back to you know you, you you talked about what your mom said so tell us a little bit about you who are you you know kind of what shaped you to get you to where you are right now because i know you've had a, a quite a colorful background from when we first caught up so Take us through, take us through, well, now, firstly, I guess, do I call you Javon? Do I call you JT? And then is that part of your story? <laughs> so we'll, we'll, yeah, I tell you what, we'll, we'll start there. So I actually go by Javon now. So I, I, gosh, man, for the last 30 years, I've gone by JT and I'll tell you how that came to be. So my name's Javon, but when I first entered the business world, I was trying to land appointments, get on people's calendars. Uh, and for whatever reason, I could not land an appointment. So finally, one gentleman got on a call with me and he says to me, he goes, uh, how did you get a black first name and a Irish last name? And I laughed because I, the, the first thing that popped in my mind was, oh, wow, all this time. I didn't know my last name was Irish. And so, <laughs> so I didn't even think about what he said at first about having a black first name. Right. But then when I got off the call, it hit me. And I said, oh, maybe that's why I'm not getting on people's calendars and I'm not getting callbacks. So the following week, I completely changed my name and started going by my initials. My, my name's Javon Thomas McCormick. So I started going by JT. And I'll be damned, Ravi, I, I started getting appointments. I got on people's calendar. And so from early eight, early 20s uh, through uh, summer of this year, I started going by, I went by JT. And then the reason why I went back to Javon is, you you, you remember back in, in June, the protests broke out here and, right. and all the things that were, were taking place. Well, I was I was a bit offended, and and the reason why is I saw a lot of what I call status signaling and, and shallow attempts at change. You know, blackout Tuesday, people were blacking out their Twitter, and I'm like, okay, what change is that bringing? And, and you know, people arguing over a syrup bottle, and 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 I just thought this is this is such shallow status signaling uh, BS. And I said, you know what? I saw an article. 
and they talked about there are only three Fortune 500 uh, black CEOs. Mm. And so I started reading the article and then I, I saw their names, Kenneth Frazier, uh, Roger Ferguson, and Marvin Ellison. Three very ambiguous names, you know, eth ethnic free names, if you will. And I thought, interesting. I said, you know what? I'm going to do something for me that I believe will show change. I'm going to change my name and go by my given name of Javon. And the reason why I did it is because I wanted every uh, boy and girl that, that come from the communities that I come from to see that a Javon made it to the CEO chair and to, to see that it can be done. You can come from a fractured background, a chaotic background. Uh, but more importantly, I, I wanted them to be able to enter the workforce and not just have to work with JTs, but to work with the Javon. All, all of those individuals who may have an ethnic sounding name, the, the Jamarcuses, the Laquandas, the, the Latavius and Ravantes right. uh, of the world, for them to be proud of their names and to be able to go into the workforce and not have to edit themselves for society, but to be able to be proud and, and to feel that they can be a part. So that's that's what really pushed for me to uh, start going by Javon again. Got it. And it's interesting um, because that's something that we share in terms of my background. So <clears throat> obviously I'm an Asian background and a whole bunch of my buddies from uni um, Know, have gone with different names. So I've got a guy whose real name's Balkar, he's called himself Bob. I've got Jatinda and he calls himself Tony. So yeah. <laughs> exactly the same thing. I'm like, hey, what's going on here? But interesting also, as time has gone on, they're going back to, no, Hank, this is my name. It's all good. Yeah. You know, and that's how it should be. So um, totally makes sense. So back to you. So that's thank you for helping understand kind of name change. Totally get it. Makes complete sense your background, kind of how you came to be who you are. Tell, tell us listeners about that, because I'll tell you what, when you shared that story with me, I was blown away. All right, so, so you know that's an open-ended question. So I'll, I'll start. Um, so my father was, I was born to my, my father, he's a black pimp and drug dealer. Um, and when I say pimp, my father used to put women on a street corner, they sold their bodies, and my, my dad took every dollar from them. Uh, along the way, he also fathered 23 children. So I'm one of, of 23. And my mother, my mother's white, she was an, an orphan. She was raised in the 1950s institutional orphanage where the kids were routinely beat, neglected, abused. Uh, but when she turned 17 years old, they gave her a small suitcase, $20, and said, good luck. There's a world. We know you've never been outside these four walls, but there you go. Make the best of it. And, and unfortunately for, for my mother, one of the first people she met was my well-dressed, fast-talking, quite a bit older father. And um, I, I was born and unfortunately I, I lived in extreme poverty. I call it U.S. poverty. Um, and, you know, I was in and out of juvenile three different times as a kid. I, you know, I know what it's like to go to bed. Uh, hungry on a Friday night because you're not going to eat again until Monday when you get a free meal back at school again. To I know what it's like to pull a trash can from the the trash from the trash can because you're you're hungry and you want to eat. Um, I was sexually molested by one of my dad's prostitutes at the ages of six, seven, eight years old. I never graduated from high school. I ended up having to. I, I make the joke, Ravi. Um, 
I, I told somebody the other day, I said, look, I had three letters behind my name long before I was the CEO. And they were like, well, what were your three letters? I said, I had a GED uh, so <laughs> because I, I don't have a high school diploma. I got a GED. Uh, I never went to college. And so here I am. And so, I mean, first of all, what a background. How, how did that upbringing shape you? And, and I'm probably more keen to understand not only how it shaped you, than how it's shaped how you lead the business. So it, it's, it's interesting. Ravi, I've, I've had so many people say to me, they're like, oh, my gosh, you know, you, you had every reason to fail. And... I always push back and I said, no, I actually had every reason to succeed. And they were like, how so? I said, well, if you can make it through that chaos, then it, the rest of life is pretty damn easy. So I, I feel that because I faced all of those challenges, all of the chaos, the fractured background, I feel that it very much prepared me for life uh, because when, when you look at business, Business is pretty easy considering I, I grew up trying to figure out when I was going to have my, my next meal. Um, one, one of the stories that stands out to me when we put it straight to, to business, hmm. I was nine years old and I, I've actually just recently started sharing this story because uh, it, it could be offensive to some people, but it's how I grew up. So it's my story. I'm going to share it. And so uh, my dad had me one weekend and we're driving around in his car and we're collecting money from prostitutes. And we pull up to one prostitute and he cracks the window. And I remember it was cold, cold outside, Robbie. And he cracks the window and she gives him a stack of money. And she says, hey, can I come in? I, I, I made my money, blah, blah, blah. And he said, no, 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 get back out there. You can make a little more, make you a little more. And he, and he was really positive about it and trying to encourage her to go back out there and make more. Right. So then we get to the next lady and he cracks the window and i remember it was on my side i was sitting in the front front seat of the the car nine years old with my dad and she hands uh, her money and i could see the the stack of cash was not like the first lady and he takes it from her and, and you know he goes into this massive tirade of get your ass back out there make my money blah 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 cussing her out calling her all kinds of names and she she goes out there and he rolls up the window and I remember thinking to myself, huh, I wonder, and I was nine years old. I said, I wonder if I shared part of the money with the women and I treated them better, could I have more prostitutes and make more money in volume if I was just nicer and shared the money? So, so the, the mindset was, how do I scale this? How do I treat people better? But that, then I took it a step further and I even thought about competition. I thought, well, ooh, I'm going to have a lot of other pimps that aren't going to like me because I'm going to start taking their women from them. And, and so that was really my first thought into business. And how do you scale? How do you do it better? How do you put people first and treat them better? And that, that, was, that was really my, my first moment into, into business. Wow. Okay. Wow, wow. Um, if I take where you are now, I, you know, it's really clear that culture is a really big deal for you guys. And it shows up, you know, on a whole bunch of areas. But if I just take the glass door to statistics, which are pretty incredible, you have a CEO approval rating of a 100%. <laughs> you got, I mean, you guys have a 98% of people would recommend you to a friend. 
overall you have 4.9 stars out of five how do you do that wow first and foremost um people first people above everything i i'm i'm very simple robbie i don't i don't make business hard uh people make business hard you so, so you, you you make it very simple people process profits if you find great people you can build great process you can make great profits as a bonus then you can do great things with those profits for the communities you serve for people outside of your organization and even more so for people within the organization so people process profits always put people first it's our number one value is people our number two principle is do right by people so and and, and think about this for a second everyone always recognizes the ceo and the ceo this and the ceo that the fact of the matter is not just me when i say this ceos are only as good as the great people they're surrounded by that's it, it, it you're, you're only as good as the great people you're surrounded by the the people you work with should always be greater than you so i'll take this a step further i'm only as good as the great people i work with if those people become exceptional, then I'm allowed to be great, but I'm never in front of the people that I serve and support. I'm only as good as the great people that I work with. Hmm. And that sounds like servant leadership to me. Is it, in, it, in my opinion, it's the very definition. And unfortunately, the, the, the term servant leadership has become watered down and it's been overused. Uh, servant leadership, as far as being overused, ranks right up there with people using the word hustle. It's watered down. It, it doesn't have its meaning that it once have. But yes, it's mm. truly the definition of servant leadership. And a matter, matter of fact, I, I'll, I'll go a step further into this. If you've noticed, I've, I've never said people work for me. No one works for me. People work with me. They're, everyone's equally as important in the organization a, as I am. If you go to our website, and you, you go to most companies, you go to their About Us page, first thing you see, C-suite executives, chairmen's founders, blah, blah, blah. If you go to ours, I'm actually at the bottom of the page and, and there's, it's purposeful, it's, it was done intentionally. I want you to see all of the people who actually do the work long before you make it down to me. My role as a CEO is to serve and support the organization. Yes, do I make some decisions? Yes, do I set some direction? Yes, I do all those things. But it's to serve and support the people who are actually executing on the day-to-day. -day. Right. And, and how does that show up for you? So, you know, you take a day. I know there's never a typical day as a CEO. But if you take a day, where, where are you spending your time? What proportion of time are you spending on you know, those key strategic decisions on issue resolution, on people matters. So kind of, yeah, how do you spread yourself out so that you can be that kind of a leader? I would say first and foremost, um, in, in that service, I don't sit in an office. I don't sit behind a door. You, you hear a lot of people joke and they'll say things like, um, I have an open door policy. My belief is, well, if you don't sit behind the door, you don't have to have an open door policy. So right, right. I, I sit out in the middle of the office and I say, I have an open chair policy. There's two chairs in front of my, my desk. So anyone can come sit with me. I'm approachable. I, I'm there. At any time you want to have a conversation, you, you can come uh, sit with me. We, that, that's my role is to, to serve the organization. Uh, how else does it play out? 
I, once we individuals make it to an on-site interview with us, I sit with every person before they're hired into the organization. Once they're hired into the organization, myself and the co-founders, we all make sure we sit uh, your second week of, of onboarding with us. You get to sit with us and we answer any questions you have. I feel that it's very important that you meet the, the people who are the CEO who's leading the organization, the co-founders who, who created the organization. And it's sad because so many people go to work for companies and they never know, they've never met the the owners or the, the co-founders. And don't get me wrong, I get it. You know, Jamie Dimon of Chase can't meet everyone. I, I get that. But at, at the size of our organization, we can. So mm-hmm. I find it very important that that, that happens. But on a typical day-to-day, there's, you know, obviously I get my fair share of emails and things of that nature. But uh, my day consists of how, how do I serve? Uh, I walk around the office. I say hello to people. Uh, I, I frequently will ask people, okay, if you became the CEO tomorrow, what's the first thing you do? What's the hmm. first thing you, you edit, change, enhance, do away with? What's interesting is you find phenomenal answers in that question. Because so many people have thought to themselves, man, if, if I was CEO, I would do this. Why well, go and ask? Well, what is it that you would do? And, and I've received a, a lot of great feedback. The most humbling pieces of feedback that I receive is I say, okay, if you became CEO tomorrow, what's the first thing you would do? I've gotten this answer from several people. They said, find out exactly what we need to do to bring you back as CEO. Beautiful. It's interesting, just picking up on something you just said there around recruiting new people and, you know, with the scale of your business, you can do that. Personally, invest your time and energy, right, in getting the right people on board. Interestingly, I uh, I heard a podcast with Joel Peterson, who's the chair of Southwest Airlines, same message. He goes, I personally will speak to the person at people and I will personally do the reference checking. Yes. Because that's what matters. And if I'm not spending my time getting the best people, I'm not doing my job as a chair of the board. Yes. Yep. I, I, I speak with every person we hire in and I speak with every author after they publish. We do what's called an author alumni call. So every author we've published their book, I speak to them. Mm-hmm. And someone challenged me and said, well, you know, Javon, that doesn't scale. And I said, well, wait a minute. If I don't make time for the people we serve, our tribe members and our authors, then what is my role for? And, and so you have to make time for, for those things. And, and, and here's another piece for me. I, I believe this. As the CEO, 99.9999% of the decisions that, that you make should never be for you. They should always be in service of the organization, in service of uh, the, the people you serve, and the the clients, authors, customers that that you serve. If you find yourself that you're the CEO and you're making decisions for yourself, you need to give that chair up and give it to somebody else. Gotcha. And I think with that, we can uh, think a little bit about Milton Friedman and his whole element around shareholder. <laughs> The whole uh, motivation, right? And inc- well, you know, it's 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 Ravi. It's it's sad because it, it, to be fair to Milton, if you are a publicly traded company, that's actually how it's set up. It's it's shareholders first, yeah. Then it's customers second, and and people who work with the company who work for the company that they're actually third, and and that's that's just 
factual of when you're a publicly traded company, that's the the order of operation. And, right. and it's unfortunate. It, being private, we don't, I, I, I will never, ever, and, and I, you know, the people say, never say never. I'm going <laughs> to say never. I will never be the CEO of a publicly traded company because I refuse to put shareholders first. It, it, here, we put people first. And, and that's the way we we serve the organization. Uh, and if you look at some of the greatest private companies that are out there, most of them are people first companies. Yeah, uh, interesting. So with that one, you know, as you probably aware, the business roundtable, right, almost a year over a year ago now, made its commitment around you know moving towards stakeholder advocacy, moving towards a focus on stakeholders rather than purely in shareholders. You know, 150 or so top CEOs sign that. Do you have a perspective on the intention of that? And if, if you know how that's progressed into them converting it into real activity and practice? I, I believe it's a great first step. I, I also believe it's a bit of a status signaling effort to show, oh, look at look at what we're doing. Because the fact of the matter is, especially CEOs of publicly traded companies, if you don't hit those quarterly earnings, let's see how how long you continue to go. Stakeholder value is the first thing. You've got to hit those numbers in order to maintain that seat as the CEO. So, you know, I, I have great respect for uh, people like uh, Jeff Bezos. He came out in 1997 and he wrote his letter and said, look, I don't care what you think about me. This is the way we're operating. And I thought, now that's awesome. So you have maybe 10 to 15 companies, I feel, that truly operate in that fashion where they're putting stakeholders and, and people first and they don't really give a damn about the shareholders. If the, if the shareholders reap the benefits of the, the company growth, great, but that's not their first and foremost what they're looking to do. You know, so you know, change starts slowly. We'll, we'll see where that leads, but I, I stand by it. Let's see how long they, they live that pledge when they're not hitting quarterly earnings because then the, 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 real, the, the real service will, will then surface of how are you living by that pledge? Or are you going to shift now and say, hey, okay, we got to put that, uh, that, that stakeholder thing on the, on the back burner for a second because we're not hitting earnings. Absolutely. I, I remember reading an amazing piece about Paul Pullman when he came in to take over or Unilever. He's obviously left now. Um, but, uh, you know, in his initial period, he said, that's it. I'm no longer giving you quarterly results. That's yeah. not going to drive the right behavior for Unilever. And, and therefore, it's not the right behavior for you as a shareholder. I yeah. sent it to you, you know, biannually. But don't ask me for quality because that's not going to get me in the right frame of mind. And it's amazing. You know, uh, he, he made that very clear commitment. He followed through on that. And wow, you know, the results speak for themselves. Uh, but it, boy, it, he, he must have had backbone and heart to be able to do that for a public listed company. Totally. And, and, and here's, here's a great example. I, I'm so glad you brought that up. Look at Michael Dell. You know, back in the 90s, uh, late 90s, early 2000s, Dell was one of the biggest, hottest companies out, out there. Right. And then things changed. And what ended up happening, that stock was down, you know, $11. And, and you cannot bring 
actual change to an organization when you're having to report a quarterly number. So what did he have to do? He had to take, take the company private. So that way you're not reporting every quarter. You go in, maybe you have some losses, maybe growth isn't as fast as you want, but you can't, you got to do it behind the private wall because you can't be judged every quarter on, on, on trying to hit a number that just doesn't work. So I, I thought it was great that he came out of retirement, took his company back, retooled, got it back in order, then went public, uh, public again. So I, it, it's hard. You can't, you can't drive lasting results having to report a quarterly number. And the big, the bigger the company gets, the the longer it, the, some of those initiatives are going to take to to uh, implement and execute on. And it doesn't happen in three months. Absolutely, it takes time. So, Javon, you've got something uh, that's very unique and ex- explicit called the Culture Bible. Um, and so, tell me a little bit about the thought process behind making that you know why was it done um, and how was it created so it's, it's our set of uh, principles and values that that we we live by as a organization and it, here here's the most important piece that i would say to that that culture bible and now that we're, we're talking about big publicly traded companies most people when you go to work for a company you actually don't know what they stand for their principles and values until you go work at the company until you're hired you do your first week of onboarding then you may learn their principles and values so our culture bible we actually make it public facing anyone can see this this document anyone can add comments on the side of it and the reason why we do that is we want you to know who we are and what we stand for long before you get here. Because you may read that culture Bible and say, mm, I don't want to be a part of that. I, that, that. Those aren't my beliefs. Great. We saved you time. You saved us time. So we want you to know who we are and what we stand for before you ever apply here. That's a, a critical piece because that uh, eliminates friction, hiring the wrong people, things uh, of that nature. Then once you're in the, the, the tribe and the company itself, we actually live by those principles and values. It, you know, it's, it's put people first. One of, one of my favorites is ask questions. I, I say this to every person on their, their first week of onboarding. We all have worked at companies where you can get fired for asking too many questions. And and I say this to people here, you can actually get fired for not asking enough questions, especially if you make a mistake because you were too prideful that you didn't want to look dumb or look stupid for asking a question. You're not a culture fit. Ask questions. Me personally, I have built a career out of asking questions. To this day, I still sit in meetings. I'm surrounded by every everyone in the company's got a degree except for me. 75% of the company have master's degrees. And I sit in meetings and people will use words that I don't know what they mean. I'll stop the meeting and I'll say, what's that mean? They'll, they'll tell me what it means. Why that's important is I want people to see I'm living by our principles. Ask questions. There are no dumb or stupid questions. Ask questions early and often. So let's say, uh, you know, I love what you've just said there. Um, but I've, having worked in a bunch of uh, organizations and, uh, you know, I've come across CEOs that are saying, look, the business looks to me for the answers. I, I need, in order to run or steer this ship, I need to have the answers. You know, how, how does that kind of balance out with a CEO who feels the pressure 
to know it all. Oh man, so okay, now, now you got a good one for me, Raffi. So I, I'm of the mindset of, and, and I'm gonna paraphrase here. So one of the, the greatest stories I ever read was in my early 20s. And I read the story about Henry Ford when he was on trial because they said he was not competent to run his company because he only had an eighth grade education. And I, I, again, I'm paraphrasing. So he's on trial and they're asking him all kinds of questions, Spanish inquisition, so on and so forth. And he didn't know the answers. And, and his response was, I assure you for every uh, question I don't know the answer to, I am surrounded by people who know the answers. And for me, that became, I'm like, oh, so that's the leadership style. So for me, here, here are my three rules to, to leadership for me. Hmm. Surround the company with people far smarter than myself, surround myself with people far smarter than myself. And then rule number three, repeat rules one and two, that's it. And so I never wanna be the smartest person in the room. I, I, I am not afraid to ask questions. I believe I want people who all are smarter than me who know the answers. Again, my role is to assess, process, make a decision, set a direction. But you can only do that with accumulating the information around you from people, in my opinion, who are far smarter than you. And, and so I, I'm not here to have all, all the answers. My role is to surround myself with people who have the answers so we can get into a room collectively, make decisions and set a direction. Now, Javon, as you speak, one of the things that really comes out very strongly for me is, um, I hope you don't mind me saying this, you come across as someone who has completely gotten rid of their own ego, right? And, you know, so that's a very special place to be, I think, extremely special. Um, what would you say to a CEO who's still battling with that? And, and, you know, and there is some of the ego that's kind of driving that and a bit about looking good. You know, in a one-to-one -one conversation, is there a... Is there a suggestion you can give to them that's connected to their ego and how effective they could be as a leader? I'd say the number one piece, the moment you let go of that ego and you sit in the room and you you actually say to, to the executive team, uh, the, the people you, you trust the most, when you say to them, look, I am not in here to know all the answers. I trust each of you in here to, to know the answers for us to be able to come together. And we have to do that collaboratively. I don't want to be the smartest person in the room. I'm not the smartest person in the room. And the minute you own that, you'll start to see people will ask questions. People will surface information. Right. When, when everyone sees you as the big ego, that's the minute you're going to have information hoarding. They're not going to share things with you for fear that you may push back or you think you know all the answers. And I never want to be in that position because the minute you slow down the information share and the knowledge share, that that's when companies stagnate. The moment you open up and say, I don't know all the answers, I trust each of you to come in here with, with incredible amounts of knowledge share. You'll see the company grow with, with, with literally within the month. You, you'll start to see the information that is pouring out. Um, I, I have been in the incredible position to continue down to that question you have. Um, because I come from nothing, because I come from a fractured background, and I have been blessed, and now that I'm in the incredible position that I, I've made 
you know, eight figures in the stock market. I've been the president of a software company and I, I can't write code. I'm now the CEO of a publishing company and I can't tell you an adverb from an adjective and I can't spell. <laughs> so, so, you know, and I, I've got a wonderful wife and four healthy children. Put all of that together, I don't have anything to prove. The, the goal now for me in life is to continue to build something great that, that so many people can benefit from, but I'm not in, in the m mode of proving something. And I feel that with ego for a lot of CEOs, they're out to prove something. And don't get me wrong, I, I, I'm gonna be fair here. For years, I was out to prove something. I was, you know, proving that I just because I was from uh, low low economic background, that because my dad was, I was always out to prove that I could do it. I could do it. But there comes a point for CEOs. Look, if you're in the chair, you've made it to the CEO level. You're not. There's nothing to prove anymore. Now you just have to build an incredible organization, and you do that by way of the people you've surrounded yourself with. So interesting, and I love what you just said there. And this is for the listeners who are maybe more founders of startups, where I would say you still have that element of ego. You know, they're they're a founder of a small company, still on, you know, finding their way. Maybe just done a two or three rounds of investment, family, friends, um, but that ego still shows up, and and I kind of wonder how much of it is. You, you are the CEO versus, you know, and, and there's probably an element of scale or type of business or experience you've had to get to where you got to, because you can be a CEO of a popcorn stand and no, not dismissing any popcorn stands. I've run a popcorn stand of seven people, <laughs> or you can be CEO of a multinational, right? So I, I kind of wonder whether there's something in there around your journey to becoming CEO and when you really feel ready that you just need to let go and let it go. As like the Disney song said. Oh yeah, exactly, man. I hear that often. You know, I got a, a seven-year-old and a three-year-old daughter, and, and yeah, so we hear a lot of "let it go" at the house. <laughs> so, so um, no, you, you you nailed it. So many founders are hooked on the fact that they're founders, so they feel that they've got to stay the CEO, uh, and, and they're caught up more on credentials than. They, and, and here's the question that that I would ask people: Do you want a title, or do you want a great company? Because if you want a great company, then let the title go. Because if you can find someone that can serve the organization better than you can, then then give it to that individual. Especially, I say this to co-founders, you'll always be the co-founder. If you want a title, there, great, you've, you've got one. You will always be the co-founder. But just because you're a co-founder doesn't mean you know how to run a company. Doesn't mean you know how to scale. It means you had a great idea for a product or service. It means you got it launched. And it means that, okay, great, there it is. Now, how do you scale? There's so many great ideas that have gone to the grave because the co-founder couldn't get out of his, his, own, his or her own way. Here, here's the, the, the best example I can, I can give. Think about Facebook. And I'll say this, I'm not embarrassed about it. Facebook. Mark Zuckerberg is nothing more than the face boy of Facebook. Sheryl Sandberg runs that company. And so it, he, he had a great idea, but to his credit, he got out of the way and said, okay, I need Sheryl to come in here and run this. Uh, truth be told, I still personally think he should go uh, to executive chairman because, you know, publicly traded company. And I believe he should hand the reins over to Sheryl Sandberg as, as CEO. She runs the company, uh, but 
it, I, I give him credit. He stepped out of the way. You look at the Google guys. They stepped out of the way. They say, hey, we need Eric Schmidt in here. Let's, let's step to the side. So you got a lot of great uh, founders who have stepped out of the way. A lot of people don't know this. Jeff Bezos, his president was with him since the late 90s. No one talks about that guy. It, everyone celebrates Jeff Bezos, but Jeff Bezos surrounded himself by incredible people. And that's how he was able to scale. Yeah, he was the face guy. He made some decisions, but it's widely known. He has a group that he meets with that runs that whole company. It's not just Jeff. No one company is ever built on one person. Absolutely. I wonder how that reflects in Tesla's share price, but that's a conversation for another story. <laughs> You know, so, even even Elon Musk, yeah, the, the 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 man is obviously brilliant. I mean, there, there's no denying that. But brilliance still only takes you so far. If you don't have a team of people you work with that can execute, brilliance is it, it will only take you so far. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I could go on with this conversation forever. The culture book. If I was to approach a manager within your company or whether you even call them managers maybe they're coaches or the heads whatever they are um, we, we so call them that no that's important because that's part of the culture so so i'll give you this one you know with with most companies they're called um you know people say uh who who are your direct reports who do right. you report to no if you were in leadership in this company you were referred to as a direct support because if you're in leadership your role is to support that's it nice no nice. one reports to you you support the people you serve. If you're in leadership, you are nothing more than a support system. And, and again, to your point, that's part of our culture. I love it. I mean, those words have completely transformed the role. Beautiful. So if I was to go to one of your direct support people and with, with the intention of kind of running with this culture Bible and you guys being a force for good, with the day-to-day -day demands of running a financially sustainable business, what would they say are the tensions? As you grow and scale to make sure that we are serving those direct supports to the, to the fullest, you don't want to end up with people who feel underserved. They, they don't feel heard anymore. They don't feel seen because you've grown so big that now the culture has changed. One of the important factors that any company has to uh, admit and accept is if you plan to grow and scale, your culture will change because you're going to add different people, more people, more personalities. So the only question you're trying to answer at that point is, how will the, the, the culture change? Will it enhance? Will it grow? will it blossom or will it go by the wayside and, and die? But you have to make a conscious decision to say, okay, our culture is going to grow. It's going to succeed. It's going to, to scale. I've heard people say so many times, oh, our culture is never going to change. Well, if you plan on staying 10 people forever, maybe you can say that. But if you're going to grow and scale, oh, your culture is going to change. That's just by adding people to it, it's going to change. So for us, the, those direct supports, they, they know how, how do we continue to serve and support the individuals, the tribe members within the company? That is first and foremost the, the goal. Even this, again, my mindset goes into this one. I've been shocked when I hear companies use the term, and Rav, you've heard this, 
Customer satisfaction is number one. Customer satisfaction is key. Here's what I don't understand. If my wife goes out to a girl's night on Friday with her girlfriends and someone says, How, how's your husband? I would be appalled and I would never want my wife to refer to me and say, yeah, you know, he's satisfactory. He's satisfactory. If someone's asked my kids, hey, how's your dad? Oh, yeah, I got a satisfactory dad. So I don't understand why in business satisfaction is the bar that we're after. (laughs) To me, what we look for is we want customer fulfillment. We want you to be fulfilled when you come away from working with us. I, I want my children to say, you know what? My dad, yeah, he made some mistakes, but man, he fulfilled me as a father. I want my wife to feel fulfilled, to feel fulfilled. So we don't strive for the the, the weak bar of customer satisfaction. I, I just don't understand that. So uh, the same thing with, with supporting uh, our tribe members. How do we ensure that they are fulfilled in the role, they have quality work, a, a great culture, uh, and, and how do we support all, all of those things? And the last piece I'll say to this, Ravi, is in corporate America, you hear this thing called recruit and retain. Who the hell wants to be retained? I don't want to retain anybody. anybody. I, I, call, I call it this. I, I want to attract and provide. I want to attract people to our company and our culture by what we do, the work we provide, our culture Bible. So I want to attract you to us. And then once you're in the company, we want to provide an an opportunity, an environment that you can wake up each morning and you can say, you know what, I can retire from this company if I want to. Even if you choose not to, the fact that you have the option is is what we want to provide. Right, right, right. It's interesting. You remind me of a conversation I had with uh, Mike McFall, the uh, co-founder of Big B Coffee. And, uh, you know, their mission right now is about helping people live a life they love in whatever way that shows up. And then everything they do within their organization, whether it's for uh, franchisee owners, managers, staff, how are we as an organization helping you live a life you love? Because if people are living a life they love, man, when it comes to work, I mean, it's incomparable to people showing up day-to-day being compliant to do the job. Totally. Totally. It's, yeah, we, we, we have several people obviously here that came from corporate America, uh, very large, profitable uh, retail companies that if I said their names, you, you would know who they, who they are. But what, what's interesting is some of my favorite stories are when people find out that we don't track your hours. I don't care how many hours you work each week. And, and they said, well, define success for, for a tribe member. Are you upholding the principles and values of the culture? Are you performing in your role? Are you driving results? If you're doing those three things, I don't care if you work two hours a week. In fact, if you if you can do those three things in two hours a week, I'm going to come hang out with you to find out what you're doing. <laughs> so it, it's and it's interesting because people are just blown away that they can go to their child's activity during the school day, and right. no one no one's going to have their thumb and and check on you and micromanage you, or maybe they had a doctor's appointment that that ran long. No one cares. Do your thing, and, and so it, it, we're adults. We, we, we pay you, your direct deposit goes in on time. And so the expectation is, are you up? Are you living by the principles and values? Are you performing in your role? Are you driving results? If you're doing those three things, wonderful. Thank you for being part of the tribe.
Beautiful, beautiful. So what a great way to end it. A couple of things to close out. Um, if you were speaking to your CEO, who was keen to pivot their organization to become a force for good in whichever way that shows up, whether it's having a higher purpose, whether it's about how they look after their people, whether it's how they show up as leaders, whether it's about stakeholder management. Um, what advice would you give them? First tip I would have for the CEO, I would say to them, start with self. Look in the mirror. If, if you're looking to pivot, if you're looking to go in a different direction, are you the best person to uh, take that pivot and, and lead that new direction? And, and you, you're going to have to have a very honest and brutal conversation with yourself because you may not be the person, you know, given, given whatever your organization is now and how you became successful. If you're looking to make a pivot, everyone can't pivot. You know, that you, you've heard that the whole phrase, what got you here won't get you there. So it, the pivot you're making, you have to have a hard conversation with yourself and say, okay, am I the person to lead this organization into this pivot, into this new direction? You may not be. So long before I would share anything with the CEO of what they need to do within the organization, you got to start with self because if you can't make the pivot, if you're not best for the pivot in new direction, you got to find someone who is. Beautiful, beautiful. Uh, you know what, Javon, I just love how you can take some pretty complex uh, scenarios, situation, and just simplify stuff. I mean, that is one serious <laughs> skill you have there, buddy. I mean, seriously, I mean, I can see how people get what you say and say, okay, let's go. Because, man, if there was ever an art in simplification, you have nailed it, sir. You've absolutely and it, nailed it. Ravi, I, I, I attribute that. And, and it took me years to, to own this. So many people have said to me that not having a college degree and, and having, you know, a, a lack of quote unquote academic credentials has actually served me because I just look at the simplest way to perform. People make business complicated. Business at its core is not hard. It really, it really isn't. People make business hard. And so I just look to how do we keep things simple? And the best way I have found to do that is never go over five initiatives or five principles or five. I, and if you can't keep it at three. And, and so I'll, I'll, I'll share this last piece with you for me personally. How do I keep it all going? You know, I've got four kids. My kids are ages seven, five, three, and two. Uh, you know, we, we have the company, but I, I boil my life down into five principles, God, health, family, business, and investing. If it doesn't fall within those five uh, principles, I don't do it. I, I love to play golf, but golf takes four hours to play around the golf. I've got four children at home. I much rather spend that time with them. So I, I keep things very simple streamlined. I stay committed to what I'm doing. You know, people right now, I, I would say this to, to anyone that, that cares to, to hear this. Um, there's a big thing that goes around in society right now, work-life balance, work-life balance. And I, I call BS. I, I find work-life balance is a joke. People that, that run around saying that. And here's why. If you say work-life balance to most people, the first thing people attack is work. Don't work 60, 70 hours a week. Uh, don't check your emails first thing in the morning. We, we should only have a four-day work week. You know, every, work, work, work. Everyone attacks work right off the bat when you say work-life balance. 
No one attacks life. No one says, how about you not binge watch Thursday through Sunday and then wake up on Monday frustrated because you haven't achieved your dreams and goals. No one says, hey, how about you not go to the bar Thursday through Sunday, then wake up on Monday pissed off because you haven't achieved your dreams and goals. No one ever attacks life. Everyone attacks work, but no one looks in that, the mirror and takes that personal accountability and say, mm, you know what? My life balance isn't in order either. So I don't do work-life balance. It's just life. It's all together. And what are you going to spend your time doing? Oh, man, love it. What a great piece of sage advice. Thank you, Javon. Um, now, I ask all guests to uh, finish off three sentences for me. Before we close out, are we okay for time, by the way? Oh, yeah, nice. I'm, I, you got me excited. <laughs> <laughs> this is the surprise question. Okay, so in the context of capitalism, so if you just think about capitalism, finish off this sentence. I like. I like capitalism. I, as a matter of fact, I'll take a step further. I love capitalism because it truly has provided me the, the life that I have. Growing up in a low economic community, um, I, all I knew that I could be was a rapper, dr drug dealer, or athlete. I did not know the power of business. I did not know the power of capitalism and in all that it provides and the lifestyle that it has given me to be able to provide for my family, to, to be able to provide this, this incredible opportunity for uh, the, the people that we serve within the company. And, and if you allow me, I'll take it a step further. Capitalism, especially here in the States, has been demonized and and people have you know looked down on capitalism but here's what i find interesting be it government or be it nonprofits what do all of them do they ask for money they want money where are you getting the money from the capitalists that's why so so why are you so down on capitalists when if you're a nonprofit where are you going and asking for donations where are you going and asking for money you're going to the capitalists and i find it just so offensive that Capitalism has been demonized, but nonprofits and governments are the first ones with their hands out to the capitalists. It's, it's broken. I'm with you on that one, totally. Next one, again, in the context of capitalism. Well, oh, I love that answer. Thank you. <laughs> I'm shaking. I wish. Ooh, Ravi. So, man, okay, okay. You said if we're good on time, so I'm good on time. I, I can't let this one go. <laughs> All right, so so I first got I gotta say, do <laughs> what? I got one more after this one. Too. Okay, all right, so so I'll be quick. <laughs> so I never wish, and there's three words I eliminated from my vocabulary when when I was a child: hope, wish, and luck. And I'll go through all three very quickly. When I was a kid, and I would hope my dad would pick me up, he never showed up. When I would hope there was something to eat when I got home. Never, nothing ever appeared in the refrigerator. So I stopped hoping and I replaced hope, wish, and luck with believe, with belief. See, belief forces execution. If you believe something, you've got to go out and execute to make it happen. So, so, uh, and I got to tell you the story. So I got a, a friend of mine that's a pastor and he says to me, Javon, I can't eliminate hope. I said hope 16 times in my sermon last Sunday. I said, okay, do you want me to hope there's a God? Or do you want me to believe there's a God? Now, keep in mind, he's a pastor and he looks at me and he goes, damn, I never thought of it that way. 
I said, because look, if I just hope there's a God, there's no commitment there. But if I believe there's a God, I've got to live a godly lifestyle. If I believe I can have that promotion, then I've got to work to get it. If I believe I can have that big house in, in that neighborhood, then I've got to execute to get that house. And then wish, same thing. You can wish you had the big house, wish you had the promotion, but it doesn't force you to execute. So I don't, I don't wish. And, and matter of fact, um, I, I said I got four children. So we got a lot of birthdays in our house. When I put the cake on the table and we say blow out the, the candles, we never say make a wish in the McCormick house. We say make a goal we, because wishing does not produce anything. So when you blow out those candles, you make a goal. And then luck, there's no such thing as luck. You know, if, if, if there was such a thing as, as luck, it sure in the hell didn't find me when I was a kid. So it's, there's just, there's no such thing. And then people will say, well, what about the lottery winner? She won a hundred million dollars. She's not lucky. She executed and she went and bought a ticket. There's no luck. So okay. to your point, I don't wish. <laughs> you know Let me give you a third one then. I love the pushback. And the same thing in the context of capitalism, I wonder. I'd have to take it back to the beginning. I wonder why capitalism is demonized so so much when I, I get that there is negative that is done with money. I get I get that. Um, but capitalism provides so much for, for so many people. Like I said, it, it truly uh, it changed my life. It, it saved my life to be able to know that, wow, you can go out there and, and through capitalism, uh, change, change your, your stars, if, if you will. And here's the other piece. I wonder if we provided more capitalism into low economic communities, how better off we would be as a society and how we could actually change those lower economic communities. Because if, if I don't even, and this is a true story, I did not know what a barista was until I was 34 years old. So how, how as, a, as a child, am I supposed to know that I can aspire to be something when I don't even know what exists? There's, there's no J.P. Morgan Chase Bank in the lower economic community. It's sad that here in the States that uh, more people in low economic communities know what a food desert is because there's no uh, grocery stores or things of that nature than they know what organic food is. That's sad. And so through the power of capitalism, why not uh, put a Whole Foods in a low economic community, a Starbucks in a low economic community? Now, here's the power of capitalism. If we want to give tax breaks to companies, because it's fair, Whole Foods may not be as profitable in the lower economic community, but that's where you give them a tax break for taking initiative to show other people, here is the power of organic food. Here is the power of business. Here are jobs that you can, you can have. And you know what? If they're not as profitable, allow Whole Foods to have a tax break for that because overall, it's better for the community and what they're serving and what they're going to do overall for the economy and for the whole country. Mm, mm, mm. Love it. You need to pick up that phone and get on the blower to John Mackey. So, hey, buddy, I have, I have your next trajectory for you. Well, oddly enough, you know, I, I'm on the board of Conscious Capitalism, of which he started. So <laughs> I'm, I'm working on it, man. Good man. Good man. So where can I send my uh, listeners to learn more about you, Javon? 
Wow. So you can go to our website to find out more about the company, scribemedia.com. Me personally, I, the only social media platform that I'm on is LinkedIn. I, I truly limit social media. <laughs> you know, going back to that, how do you spend your time? What are your five pillars? Yeah. I, I'm always blown away by how much time people spend on Instagram. I, I read an actual statistic that the average person spends 53 minutes a day on Facebook, not social media, just Facebook. And I thought to myself, do you know how much I can learn in 53 minutes a day? And and then half this, the, the shit, excuse me, Robbie, half the shit on there is someone takes a picture of their food, then they post it, I don't care what you're eating for lunch. Why are you putting this on there? So why even spend your time doing that? So, um, yeah, I, I, I limit my social media presence and it's strictly to, to LinkedIn. No worries. And otherwise, Scribe Media, wonderful. And by the way, this whole uh, social media stuff, it's self-fulfilling crap. That's what it is. I oh, took myself off all of that stuff a while ago and like, oh my God, I have time. What, what, why, why did I get sucked into it? By the way, yes. have you seen The Social Dilemma, the Netflix? You, you know, I, I have, and, and, and I got it since you brought it up, Robbie, yeah. this is yeah. your fault. <laughs> yeah, yeah, go, go, go. So here, here's what's interesting. Everyone has watched this documentary now and everyone's coming down on the big tech companies. But here's what I find interesting going back to capitalism. Yep. Everyone celebrates reoccurring revenue. Everyone celebrates, you know, how, how many customers do you have? What's your year over year profit margins? And, but here's the thing. I'm not mad at the big tech companies. And here's why they figured out how do we keep people coming back looking, spending money? How do we keep you hooked? The fact of the matter is that's the whole, you could say the same thing about the pharmaceutical industry. How do we keep you hooked so you keep coming back? Here's the thing with social media though. At the end of the day, we're trying to point the finger at the big tech companies. Don't get on. Take accountability as a person. Don't get on. If you don't like what they're doing, if you don't like that they hook you, don't get on. Don't blame them because they have figured out how to make you keep coming back. Yeah. That's called capitalism. I'm supposed to make you figure out how to keep coming back. Don't blame them. Don't get on. Beautiful. By the way, sons or daughters, what do you have? Who's the oldest? Oh, I'm, I'm incredibly blessed. Seven-year-old daughter, uh, five-year-old son, three-year-old daughter, two-year-old son. Perfect. Okay, so listen, when your daughter gets to around preteen, I'm going to recommend the most incredible book I ever read called Untangled. And it's a father's guide to teenage puberty for young girls and all the stages of their development. And I've got to say, I'll tell you, Jeff, I have three sisters. I thought I knew this stuff. But when it happened, I'm like, oh, my God, what, what is just happening in my house? And <laughs> I had a pretty tough year. And then I read the book. I'm like, oh, it isn't me. It's just biology doing its shit so it's oh you gotta fun. send that to me <laughs> okay i'll send it to you um also the other one you, you talk a lot about um you know your background and stuff have you read a book called grit you know i i, I did by angela is it Duckworth, yeah, Duckworth, I believe name. so so i i did and i i don't want to 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 be mean towards towards angela it was a, it was a tad bit offensive to me and oh. and here's why right she she did research. I lived it. Mm -hmm. And so when I was reading the book, I'm like, okay, this book is this popular because you went out and did some research. 
And, and, and so I'm like, I, I can give you some real insight to some of these things that you, you have in here. So uh, I, I appreciated the book and I appreciated her highlighting some of the, the pieces, but uh, in the communities that I, I come from, I, I can honestly say uh, a lot of people would actually laugh at that book because uh-huh. it's like, wait a minute, you, you went and did some research, but you've yeah. never actually lived this. And it, it's, so I'm torn on it. it it's yeah, a great book. Yeah, yeah. I, I appreciate her highlighting it, bringing to the attention of others. But yeah, it, it was it, it was bittersweet for me. Put it that way. Maybe there's an idea there for you. Because I'll tell you what, I, I read, my daughter bought me a book called The Moth. And I don't know if you know about The Moth Club in New York. No. Um, oh, man. I, I, okay. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get uh, The Moth. Okay. I'm going to get this for you. So I'm going to get you The Moth and Untangled, right? And it's basically... Okay regular people life stories they had this club where people took the mic and talked about their life and wow i'll tell you some of the stories are just amazing but i think there may be an opportunity here right grit written by those that have gone through it yes yes think think about that because like i said that was part of the 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 issue for me was just Okay, great. I, I can appreciate, but you know, you did it. It's it's essentially a a, a research paper turned into a book. <laughs> yeah, fair dues, Javon. It was a true pleasure. I'm genuine. To, you know, for someone, you know, where you come from, where you've gotten to, I have a, a limited level of rela- rela- relatedness in terms of your background. Nowhere near the extreme as you, but someone didn't have a lot growing up, but. Um, so just, I mean, just an incredible story. And what you're doing right now, I mean, a real inspiration for me. Thank you for making the hairs on the back of my neck tingle <laughs> as you spoke, because you really did. Sim- dumb this shit down. It's not complicated. X, Y, and Z. You take accountability for your life and get on with it. I mean, beautiful stuff. My my father would give you a great big hug if he was listening to yeah, it right that, now. That right there, Robbie. That that's that's the ultimate compliment, man. I I I am incredibly humbled. I I appreciate that. That right there is the ultimate compliment. <laughs> beautiful, you're a legend. Thank you, sir. Have a great day. Excellent, Ravi. You take care, sir. Okay, all the best. I am so pumped after that. What an inspirational story, given where he came from, what he's achieved and what he's focused on. If ever there was someone that demonstrated what grit means in real life, he's it. There was so much that resonated with me from that chat, but there were a couple of special takeaways. Firstly, his recipe for success. It's to hire great people who create great processes and that will generate great profit that will fuel the communities you serve. And very consciously, it's in that order. People, process, profit. And when it comes to people, he talks about authentically letting them know what you stand for, because it reduces the risk of friction or tension when someone joins your business. He talks about the role of leadership is to provide direct support system. And that's what they call them, direct support, not manager, not leader, not head of. And he spoke briefly about how he sits in the open plan with the troops and has an open seat policy, not an open door policy. So a thought, his belief in people clearly shows up in their day-to-day practices. How is your people intention showing up? Is it right? Is it sufficient to build the business you want to? I'll be speaking to even more CEOs over the coming months. 
If you found this insightful in any way, please do share. It's the best form of marketing there is. And even if you share with one other person, you're helping me fulfill my purpose to get the message out there that companies are and can be a force for good. And for that, I'll be forever grateful. That's it for now. And until next time. This was hosted by Ravi Rai. You can connect with Ravi on LinkedIn or on Twitter at Ravi FPC. This series is sponsored by Four Points Consulting. We make change happen with conscience and with purpose. Check us out at www.fourpoints.net. That's www.fourpoints.net.